Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Coming up the show, this is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kirk Chisholm. He's a wealth manager and self-directed IRA advisor. His company is called Innovative uh, um, Advisory Group, uh, and he's based in Lexington, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Kirk. Thanks for having me on again, Jordan. Just give us a little bit of background about you for people who haven't heard about you before. Yeah, so a little bit of background on me. So I, I started in the wealth management industry in December of 99, which, of course, you, I'm sure you can't imagine a worse time to start. Um, you know, and I, really through that time, I learned uh, the, the value of risk management because the markets pretty much went down for a few years in a row. And um, so through that time period, I really learned risk management. And, um, you know, of course, I've been in the industry for 22 years. And through that time period, I've experienced a lot of market cycles. And, you know, in 2008, uh, we actually started to focus on our niche, which is specializing in alternative alternative assets held in self-directed IRAs, um, which is kind of a special niche for us. It's a lot of fun, allows people to invest in things like horses, houses, crypto, gold, you know, minor league basketball teams inside the retirement accounts. So that's what we're well known for, but we also do a lot of kind of economic analysis as well. So let's kind of start with a broader view of the economy where it is today. Uh, The official inflation rate's 8.6% at the consumer level, about 11% at the wholesale level. The Federal Reserve's been raising interest rates. They're going to do this more. Is this inflation going to get out of control or is it is it coming under control now and, and what kind of job do you think the Fed Reserve's doing here? Uh, those are a lot of <laughs> very weighted questions. Uh, I think, you know, realistically, Jordan, um, I, I think the future is going to depend on the policy decisions that are made. And I think what people need to understand is, um, you know, inflation is quite high depending on how you're measuring it. Uh, it's It's high compared to our recent history. Uh, it's not high compared to the 70s, which I think is probably a more equivalent time period to look at. So if you really want to understand inflation, if you're looking in the last 20 years, you're going to be confused, right? And most people in the market have only been in the market for 20, maybe 30 years. But if you go back to the 70s, that means you're in for pretty much 50 years. That means you're you're probably old enough to remember it. Um, but, you know, you may not have lived it uh, fully in terms of, you know, like right around 81. If you live through that period, you experience some really rough times. And, you know, inflation rates, mortgage rates got to 18 and a half percent. You know, inflation rates, uh, de- depending on the measure and, and interest rates got between 15 and 20 percent. You know, people right now can't imagine that. But um, only because inflation peaked in 81 and pretty much went down to close to zero uh, in 2000. So for 40 years in a row, drop. Sorry, interest rates dropped and inflation dropped. That allowed us to create this wealth expansion in this economy. If you think about the last 40 years and all the abundance and wealth that was created, everything went up: stocks, bonds, real estate, commodities, everything. And if you look at it from that perspective, you realize that. Um, you know, you had this in, this bubble that was created by low rates, right? So if you wanted to get a mortgage in uh, 1981, you paid 18.5%. Well, you didn't have a big mortgage because you couldn't afford one. So real estate prices were a lot lower then because people couldn't afford to leverage up real estate. Whereas 
you know, nine months ago, you could get a 2% 30-year mortgage, if you can imagine. Yes. Now, take this for example. I'm going to use this illustration to explain the inflation concept to your listeners. Take real estate. So if you had a $700,000 property at 2% for 30 years, that's approximately $2,500 a month. Okay. Now, if interest rates or mortgage rates go up to 7.5%, that monthly rate would go up go to, to 5000 a month. Okay, double, right? Yes. yes. You're at six and a half, not even a month ago. So if that doubles to, uh, you get 5000 a month, which means you can afford a $350,000 mortgage, not a 700000 That's a cut in half of 50% of real estate prices. Now, I'm not suggesting your real estate's going to drop 50%, but directionally, that's where it's going if rates stay this high. Now, use that and overlay that into the entire economy. So if we're all, if we're all, uh, wealth is based on, on low interest rates and interest rates climb a lot higher, that means wealth is going to be destroyed. So this high inflation is causing havoc in large part because people aren't used to it. They don't understand it because it's been beyond their, you know, economic viability, let's just say. Um, you know, I was born in the mid seventies, but I don't remember the economic times. So I think for most people, it's going to be challenging to understand how it's going to affect them. Now, see, people say as far as the cause of inflation, Biden basically say it's always Putin's fault and it's the invasion of Ukraine. And everything was pretty much fine before that. Uh, others might disagree with that. Uh, and the Federal Reserve says that, that inflation was transitory all of last year until they finally said it wasn't. W what do you think is the ca cause of this high inflation we have and therefore if we understand the cost, can that be corrected and bring inflation down back to where it has been for the last 40 years or so? Yeah, I, I this is this is a great question, Jordan, because I think most people don't understand inflation, especially our politicians. Uh, I think the Federal Reserve does understand it, but what they tell us and what they understand are two different things. So I, I will just tell you, if if you're gonna if you're gonna wait for a politician or uh, a Fed governor to tell you what to think, then you might as well do the opposite because most of them are. Either in a politician's case, they don't know, or in the Federal Reserve case, they're trying to affect the public discourse. So what's basically um, happening is we had inflation last year. That was before Putin invaded Ukraine. So the whole Ukraine-Russia war is a red herring. It's, it's, it's a minor contributing factor to inflation. It does have effect. I'm not going to say it doesn't. But that's not the cause. The cause is actually, and it's also not money printing. I'll say that because that's one of the most common things people say is money printing. It's not that either. The cause is the supply chain. And if you look back in the last 40 years, things have been pretty, pretty uh, standard. And, and you, could, you could predict it, right? You could predict the drop in rates over time. But now the problem is, is COVID caused the supply chain disruption. We had a supply chain that was close to as efficient as you could get it. I mean, they squeezed every nickel out of that system. And if they could do it better, they did, right? So you could get, you know, you, you, I remember reading a book and they were talking about the 70s and how uh, there was one plunger per household. And I hate to use this, this item, but it was part of the book. And they said, now you can have like one in every room, right? Like you just, they're so cheap to produce. But back then, you know, you'd, if it broke, you'd duct tape it together. You know, like people didn't have a lot. But now it's so efficient, so cheap to produce things that people have gotten accustomed to this low rate. So now that the rate is low, people have have based their budgets around it, right? 
So the supply chain uh, was just in time inventory, but they can't do that anymore. So now it's now they have to instead of outsourcing to China, they have to regionalize it. So instead of having one place that produces their goods, there might be 10 around the world. So maybe if something happens in China, they can use Mexico or Vietnam or some other countries. They're, they've changed the supply chain. But what that means is it's now going to be more expensive because hypothetically, let's say in this, in this hypothetical example, China is the cheapest. Mexico is not as cheap, which means it costs more, which means your goods are going to cost more. So, so all of the good costs are going to go up now because it's not as efficient to produce. So, you, so your lowest cost of produ- or production is going to go higher, which means that inevitably the costs go up. Now, this is here's, here's the thing. Most people think that this is going to change quickly. I have a lot of clients in the supply chain, and they all say the same thing. If God himself were to come down and fix the supply chain, it would still take two years. Yeah. They're thinking it's going to be about three to five years. And the reason that number comes up is because it takes three to five years to build a new manufacturing facility. So if they want to move their manufacturing to the U.S. or Mexico or Canada or Vietnam or wherever, they have to build a new facility, which takes three to five years. So, so this some extent, we became too, too reliant on China. Yes. And when China locked down and then we had trade tariffs on them, that kind of exacerbated. Uh, combining that with the COVID lockdown, that exacerbated the supply chain and kind of set all this off. Yeah, I mean, basically, we've, uh, I think U.S. businesses have been uneasy about China for many years about stealing IP and, and, and a lot of those challenges. And they've got an excuse through COVID to actually make these changes. And they're doing it. And it's going to take time. I think everybody understands the problems and no one wants to rock the boat too much. But it's just going to take some time to, to work out, which means inflation's not going away. So whatever the Federal Reserve does, it's not going to immediately affect the problem. What they can do and what they're trying to do, although they've denied this, even though they've also said it, you know, in the two-hand economist role, right? Uh, if one on one hand and then on the other hand. So the, the, the Federal Reserve is saying we're not trying to send the economy into recession, but at the same point they're saying what they're trying to do is affect demand, which is the same thing. So what they're trying to do is lower demand to help change the supply equations. So supply and demand, right now we have too much demand, not enough supply. So they're trying to lower demand. That's how they're affecting uh, the inflation problem, which means they have to send us into recession, which obviously is not a good thing. Um, however, the alternative- That's gonna happen. I mean, they've been raising rates, things have been slowing. Yes. Particularly commodity prices have been coming down quite sharply the last month or so. So they would make the argument that what they're doing is working. It's slowing, it's lowering prices and getting rid of all the hype of too much real estate and so on. And so they're going to have a nice soft landing and it'll all be a, a beautiful ending to the story. That's what the, the Fed would say. That's what they'd say. But if you use history as your guide, the Fed has not been successful in a soft landing ever. So I, I'm, I don't have my high hopes that they're going to be able to do that. There's, there's really two outcomes here. If you, if, you weren't, if you didn't do anything, if the Federal Reserve left the rates at 0%, uh, and mind you, they're at 1.5%, and they really need to get closer to you know 7 If they left it at 0%, we'd effectively have hyperinflation at some point in the future. The other solution is they could raise rates up to, let's say, six or seven. They could combat inflation, send us into recession, which would solve the problem, but either way is going to be painful. They're, they're just trying to they're trying to do both, and they'll end up doing neither. Yeah, very good. All right, we're going to take a break. This is the this- show. My guest this hour is Kirk. He is with Innovative Wealth, and his uh, website is innovativewealth.com. We'll be back after this. 
All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to robotics to cybersecurity, where companies spend $150 billion a year, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest where growth potential is greatest early on. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community. Our crowd's accredited investors have already gotten get the, have used the platform to invest over $1 billion in growing tech companies. 21 of the portfolio companies are unicorns. And many of our crowd's members have benefited from over 50 IPOs or sale exits of portfolio companies. Now you can invest in Sotero, which has developed a patented new approach to data protection that eliminates the gaps of traditional methods, securing any data asset, whether it's on-premise or in the cloud. Sotero is trusted by one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. Explore Sotero's potential at OURCROW.com slash answers. You can join our crowd for free at OURCROW.com slash answers. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at OurCrowd.com slash answers. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kirk Chisholm. He's a wealth manager and self-directed IRA advisor. His company is called Innovative Wealth, and you can find out more about it at InnovativeWealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Kirk. Thanks for having me, Jordan. So assuming this inflation is going to stay with us for, as you say, three to five years while they figure out the supply chain, what assets do better and what assets do worse worse in this kind of inflationary environment? 
Yeah, so let's 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 kind of circle back. So the last forty years, uh, we've had inflation. We've had low, or declining or low inflation for the last forty years. The last twenty years has been you know low but sustainable inflation. What did well during that time? Stocks did well. Bonds did well. Real estate did well. Uh, commodities, uh, I think, up until like the last ten years, did um, did well. Uh, pretty much everything did well except for cash, because your cash got eaten away over time with inflation. Um, however, now you have to invert that, right? Because we're in an environment where basically it's the exact opposite of what you think is going to happen is what's going to happen. So right now, what is not going to do well in a high inflationary time? Uh, stocks will not do well. Bonds will not do well. Uh, commodities, it, it's the, the jury is still out. They should do reasonably well, but it depends. Um, uh, cash is going to be stagnant because nominally it doesn't change. Um, you know, I think I mentioned real estate, real estate won't do well. So pretty much everything withstanding a handful of things won't do well. So things that might do well. So cash should do fine. If you have a sustainable asset that's producing really good cash flow, like 10%, and it's relatively low risk, and it's not a security, you might be doing okay. Um, you know, people talk about gold. They think, oh, gold did well in the 70s. Uh, yeah, for other reasons. Because gold people... has not been doing well at, lately at all. It's been falling, actually. During this inflation, you'd think gold would be the ultimate inflation hedge. Yeah, and, and that's I want to mention this point, gold and crypto. So, um, so gold in the 70s did really well. But the reason it did well is because it was artificially low to begin with. So it was depending on which time frame you're talking about, it went from like $25, $35, $50. And then it floated once they went off the gold standard. And then it was allowed to float. So it went from that price up to $800. It had nothing to do with inflation. It had to do with the fact that it was artificially low. I mean, if you put a beach ball underwater, it's going to shoot right above the surface because you kept it artificially low. Same thing with gold. So I don't look at the 70s and say, oh, well, gold will do well because of that. Um, it should do fine because it protects against chaos and long-term inflation. So gold over thousands of years. So, you know, in ancient Rome, it one ounce of gold bought a, you know, a toga, like a gentleman's suit, that version of it. And you can buy with an ounce of gold today, a gentleman's suit in London. That, that standard has held up for thousands of years. So gold is a good hedge against inflation long-term. Short-term, it's anybody's guess. So I, I think it's a good hedge against inflation. But with the inflation we have now, one of the things it does is it causes mass confusion because people don't understand what's going on. So they react in ways that are maybe contradictory to what they should do. Now, a lot of people have said cryptocurrency is a great hedge against inflation. I think we all can tell right now that's not true. Uh, it's a good speculative asset. But for inflation, we have, uh, what do we have, about 13 years to, to pull from. So we really don't know if it's a hedge against inflation. It might yeah, it certainly be. Certainly hasn't been right turning up that way lately. Not lately. Yeah, you say lately. we're kind of entering a new paradigm. What what is that new paradigm? <clears throat> so the, the paradigm shift going on is this kind of reversing of the engine of inflation. It's going from uh, ne negative or declining uh, inflation and in interest rates to a high or increasing inflation and in interest rates. The the paradigm is changing everything you know about finance. Let me give you some examples. Uh, everybody, including our regulators, think bonds are safe. We're all taught bonds are safe. They're conservative. You know, put your age as a percentage of bonds. Everyone talks like that. 
And that was true for the last 40 years, but it's what we call a half-truth, which is it's true sometimes, but not all the times. This is an example where it's not true. Interest rates are at 1.5%, or the Fed funds rates at 1.5%, and it's really low. It probably should be closer to 6 But, you know, in order to get there, that means that your bonds, your quote-unquote safe bonds, are going to have to go a lot lower in price in order to have a higher yield to equivalent. I mean, 30-year treasuries, I think, are down like somewhere around 22% this year so far. Those are safe, you know, quote-unquote safe bonds. Down 22%. How is that safe? And what if they go down more, which is definitely possible? So would you like tips or something that are adjustable rate bonds that would, uh, you know, be reacting to inflation? I mean, tips is one way to go, I guess. I got to be honest with you, Jordan. I've never fully understood tips. I understand how they're supposed to work. But uh, I don't know if you've looked at the um, the tip ETF, but it's down, uh, I think, probably close to 20 percent this year, too. So uh-huh. I, so technically, people talk about tips. Oh, they're great. I, you know, I have a hard time buying into that. There is one thing that's great. If you haven't done this, go to the Treasury Direct. You can put up to 10,000 a year into inflation adjusted I bonds. I think right now they're nine point six two percent. yields. Yeah. That's right. It's a great thing to do. The problem is you can only put ten thousand a year, so you're you're limiting yourself. But it's something. Um, but tips, tips, I think, are a problem. I, I, you know, the market moves on future expectations. So if you think it's a good idea, you're already probably behind the times. But I'm just looking at their performance, and they're not holding up to what they should. This is part of the problem with this environment: is things don't operate the way you think they should, or you would rationally think that they should. It, it operates on a different level, which is why it's so hard to make money in bear markets. So what you're saying is that what we've been seeing in the last month or so, with quite sharp declines across the commodity complex, copper and aluminum and wheat and soybeans and oil, oil was 120, it's now 100 or so, that that, that sharp decline in commodities is not a, a forebear of lower inflation, which is the way some people are thinking about it. No, I think this is the hard part. This is the confusing part, right, Jordan? So what people have said in the past for the last 20 years is bad news is good news, right? Oh, it's going to recession. The Fed's going to lower rates, so we're going to pump up the stock prices. That, that has been the, the, you know, the recipe for the last 20 years. But that's no longer the case because the Fed can't lower rates because we have inflation at 8.5, 8.6, but call it 8.5 percent. Yeah. And... They can't, they're at one and a half. They can't let that stand. They have to actually keep raising rates. At some point, they can say, all right, we'll take a break. But if they do it too long, then inflation keeps going higher. That's inflation feeds on itself. It's a feedback loop. So inflation begets more inflation. Is so part, of, part of the problem also the amount of debt that the federal government has built up over 30 trillion? Is that inflationary as well? Uh, actually, that's deflationary, believe it or not. So I, I think a lot of people see the amount of money printed, they see the debt is inflationary. It's not. Because all that is, is that's future earnings carried forward to today. So once you get to a certain point, which we've well past reached that, then you're actually, you're not able to get that kind of leverage that we used to be able to get. So the fact that they have to print all the money they're printing, it's, it's not actually moving the needle. It, the reason it has to keep getting higher is because it's not moving the needle the way it should. So here, here's, the, here's the key that people should understand. Money is made in two ways. It's made by printing of money, right? They can go print dollar bills, or by banks. So the banks 
they used to lend and they could lend and get, you know, increase the money supply, let's say 10 times. So now they're not lending because of 2008, right? They're not allowed to lend or things are harsher or they, the lending has decreased significantly, which means they have to print more money to cover the difference. So the whole system is actually deflationary at this point, given the amount of debt created. And if you don't believe me, you can go look at the velocity of money. That's that's really kind of the key piece if you really want to. That's come cheat. down. That's come down a lot, right? Way down. It's come down for the last 20 years. And with COVID, it's come way down. If you want to worry about hyperinflation, watch that. When that starts to really take off on the upside, then you have to worry. Until then, we're in deflation city. I, I've been worried about deflation for years. And right now we don't have that, but we will. And it'll be it'll be an angry deflation. But right Which, now, last time we had that, well, COVID was kind of deflationary. The economy kind of shut down. So that was deflationary. And then the 2008-2009 crash was deflationary as well. A lot less economic activity. So you're saying that it, the outward signs are inflation, where we have 8.5% rates. But under the surface is a massive deflationary bubble building, is what you're saying. So here's here's what I think your listeners should understand. Inflation is, first of all, it's not a noun, it's an adjective. What's inflationary? Wage inflation, asset price inflation, commodity price inflation, right? You you have, you know, goods and services, you have, you know, demographics, everything, it's a descriptor, right? It's an adjective. But people look at it as a noun. It's not a single thing. So look at um, COVID, right? In COVID, Things that were inflationary were eat at home, you know, um, things like uh, streaming services, books, things like that were inflationary because everyone wanted them at the same time. Bikes, bicycles, you couldn't find a bicycle. That was inflationary, right? But there were things that were deflationary like hotels, travel, uh, you know, people who wanted to, like men's suits or women's dresses, shoes. All those things were deflationary because nobody wanted them, right? So. The, the complex equation that is inflation is it affects different things in different ways. So while we've had asset price inflation for the last 40 years, for the last 10 years, we've had commodity price deflation. You look at computers. When I got a, a computer in uh, 99 or 97, I got a top of the line Apple II GS, which at the time was one of the best ones. That was like $2,000. If I get the same equivalent quality of computer now, what does it cost me? $2,000. So that's been deflationary because the computers have gotten so much better, but the prices haven't changed for the quality yeah. you're you, you get, get a lot that. more for your money, yes. Right, so there, you get a combination of both things. So this is why it's confusing and why people can't get it right. They think printing money equals inflation. It doesn't. It printing, uh, and let me give you an example on this because I, I think this is a really important point. Printing of money... Here, here's here's how you should think of printing money. If I'm the Fed and I go and I want to print up 100 quadrillion dollars, which is exponentially well above what we already have. If I say, all right, I'm going to print this up and I'm going to stick it in a bank vault. I'm going to close that door. Do we have inflation? No. The money is not in circulation. Exactly. Right. Okay. If you're not spending it, then it's not causing inflation. It's like it doesn't exist. And a lot of that's been happening in the last 10 years, especially is that that money that's being printed isn't being spent and it's causing it's 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 creating this bubble this deflationary bubble that eventually is going to push prices down which is what we're seeing now and we'll probably continue to see very good we're going to take another break this is jordan goodman of the money answer show my guest this hour is kirk chisholm he's a wealth manager and self-directed ira advisor 
His company is called Innovative Wealth, and uh, you can find out more about him at his website, InnovativeWealth.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kirk Chisholm. He's a wealth manager and self-directed IRA advisor at Innovative Wealth. And you can find out more at his website, InnovativeWealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Kirk. Uh, thanks for having me back, Jordan. We've described the situation on one hand of outward inflation and uh, under the surface gathering deflationary forces. And one thing you specialize in is alternative investments, alternative to the traditional stocks, bonds, cash kinds of things. Just talk a little bit about the alternative investment as a space, and then we can get into some of the specifics. What, what, why should people consider alternatives in this economic environment we're in today? Yeah, it's it's a good question. So I, I think, you know, we're agnostic when it comes to investments. I really don't care if you're in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, or horses, houses, or gold. Uh, I think what's most important is most people think that they're limited with their choices into stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. I think that's the part that I think I really want people to understand. Because realistically, if you have rental property, and if any of you know real estate investors, or if you happen to be one, every nickel that they ever earn goes back into real estate. It's just it's just how they're wired. And that's okay, right? They'll never invest in a stock or a mutual fund, right? But it's what they know, right? We always, Peter Lynch said, I love Peter Lynch's quote of invest in what you know. I, I, I subscribe to the same thing. I think people should invest in what they know. If you're really good at technology, you shouldn't be investing in a horse farm, right? You should stick with stick with your knitting. So alternatives allow people to do that. You know, we have we've come across investors over the years that invest in real estate, 
private mortgages, tax liens, private company stock, minor league basketball teams, fishing rights, airspace rights. I mean, the, the, the list is endless because there's so many things out there on a personal level that people can do that you probably never stop to think about that are great investments. And I love it when people bring a cool investment idea to us because it allows us to really kind of participate in the experience, even though we're not doing it, they're doing it, but allows us to see what's possible out there. So we've seen some tremendous investments out there, but a lot of them really are inflation hedges or inflation proof. So that, you know, even though inflation is going to be uh, rough for a number of years, in, in my opinion, I think still there are alternative investments that should hold up reasonably well. So let's talk about some of the specific ones that you talk about, uh, kind of unusual, but horses. So we're not talking about getting a, a thoroughbred to win the Kentucky Derby or something here. How, how would you invest in horses if you're not a, a you know, racing family? Well, there are different kinds of horses, Jordan, and, and it, it may be news to you because it was to me when I learned about this. Um, I, I'm not a horse guy, but there are racing horses and there are also horses called dressage horses. Those are the ones that, that dance. Um, you know, there, there are many different types and people, uh, you know, you know, there's rodeo horses, there's all types of horses. But what's important is that there are people who uh, breed the horses and then they sell them to really wealthy people. You know, so like, you know, you might buy a horse from over in Europe, train it up and sell it to somebody like George Soros, right? Like somebody who's got plenty of money, they don't really care, they're, they're throwing it around for whatever reason. Um, there are, that is an industry, right? It doesn't have to be race horses. there's many different types. But that's an example, um, and by the way, if you didn't know, horses have their own passport. Uh, that's something else I, I learned, which is interesting. So yeah, there, there are many types, but it's, it's just like, look, if there are plenty of people listening to this, this, uh, this episode that are business owners. And maybe you run a horse farm. Maybe you run a manufacturing facility. I, I, you know, everyone has their own profession, but within that profession, there are going to be opportunities to profit. And horse is just one of those examples. If you breed horses and sell them to wealthy people, you have a certain margin. Well, what if you did that inside your retirement account, right? Stick with what you know. So let's talk about uh, self-directed IRAs. To, there are certain places that can take that. Not every, you can't go to Fidelity and put a horse farm in there or something. Where, where are some places people can go to do a self-directed IRA to do some of these alternative investments? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Jordan, because, um, you know, if you have a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, going to a custodian like Fidelity or Schwab or TD Ameritrade or, or one of those, they're, they're going to be a good solution for you because that's what they specialize in. But if you go to one of those companies and you say, hey, I want to buy a horse farm, they're going to look at you funny. The first thing they're going to say is you can't do that. OK, so when they do tell you that, you're going to don't be surprised because they're going to say you can't do that. And they're not lying to you. It's because no one's told them that, no, you can do that. They can't do that. Um, so there are a number of companies. I think there's about 46, 47 right now that specialize in this area. Uh, and, and we actually have a big list of them on our website, but the, the self-directed IRA custodians, these are firms that most of them only deal with alternatives inside retirement accounts. Some of them will also deal with traditional, but I haven't seen any company do both well. So you shouldn't try to make it convenient and do both at the same company because you might be disappointed, but they do alternatives very well and that's all they do all day. Do, do you have a favorite one or two uh, custodian that does self-directed IRAs? 
Uh, I might get in trouble by mentioning a few names, but if you go to the website, there's a few. We there, Here's the problem, Jordan. For, first of all, outside of my compliance, I couldn't do that. But yeah. if I could, here's the other problem. Out of those 46 or 47 names, they're all different. If you think of like Schwab, Fidelity, TD, they're competing on fees. You know, now there's zero, zero trading fees. These other custodians, they're they're literally they're not the same. So one one might charge you per transaction, another might charge you per the amount of assets you have. Um, the, all the fees are different. Some of them might allow real estate, some might not. So the reason there are that many is because there are so many variances within them. If you gave me two different investments, I might recommend two different custodians, yeah. which is why we have this whole we have this whole designed you know, due diligence package for people who want to understand more. We just let them do it themselves because it's so complex. It would take me a while just to do it. So we, we kind of developed this this, um, you know, this research package that allows people to do it themselves. And they can see that at InnovativeWealth.com. Is that right? Yep. Yep. They can go there and find right. that. Another one is private companies. So. Uh, the IPO market is kind of dead these days. Companies are not going public as they certainly were a, a year or so ago. What what is the uh, uh, attraction of uh, putting private companies uh, in your self-directed IRA right now? Well, I think the attraction is similar to what uh, Peter Thiel did with Facebook. Right, he bought Facebook in his Roth IRA for pennies a share, and now it's worth billions of dollars. <laughs> That's one one example. Now you have, you know, Mitt Romney who had an IRA that was worth over a hundred million dollars. You had Max Levchin and a few others that also had hundred million plus IRAs. Um, the attraction is is you can take a company and you can put a little money in it and it could turn into a ton of money. And in a Roth IRA, you pay no taxes when you take it out. So a lot of people, I think six twelve months ago, Peter Thiel was on the hot seat because people were saying we should get rid of IRAs and for wealthy people, it's like, well, you can't you can't knock the guy for playing within the rules. He did exactly what was allowed. He played within the rules. And I love it. I love that people can do that. It's we need hope in this economy. We can't have, you know, the government telling us, no, you can't be rich. Like he yeah. took he did take the risk. Facebook could have gone to zero. Right. It didn't. But it could have. And that's the thing. When you're investing in private companies, you know, there's if you look at venture capitalists, they kind of look at the odds. They assume three or four of the companies out of 10 are going to go to zero. They assume probably three or four are probably going to be, you know, uh, they're going to tread water. There might be, you know, a handful of singles and doubles. And then they're hoping for one grand slam home run. That Those are the odds. That's what they're looking for. One out of 10. And if they can do that, they can make 20, 30 percent returns a year annualized. But that's, those are the odds for them. So if they're if that's the success rate they have. Then the rest of us have to do a lot better because we don't do it professionally. So you have somebody like Peter Thiel who's got one out of ten. They don't talk about all the other nine that went to zero. They just right. talk about one, right? Another one is farmland. Uh, what is the attraction of farmland in today's economy? So I actually like farmland. So the things I like in today's economy actually are the producers. So farmland, mines, um, they should do pretty well, and I'll tell you why. So in inflationary times. The, the things that do the best are the industries that feed directly from the government. So like contractors, like defense contractors, uh, welfare recipients, um, or uh, the other the other people who do really well are the producers. So people who bring the commodity out of the ground. And the reason being is when you get the money, so let's take a defense contractor, right? The government 
prints money and they give it to the defense contractor. They take it, you know, let's say they give them $100. They take that $100 and they spend it and they spend it on something else, right? So they're, they're getting their money's worth. But now that, now that 100 turns into, uh, it, it gets devalued by inflation. So now it's really only worth $90 by the time the next person gets it, right? And then it's worth less for the next person and then less and less over time. So the people who get it direct are the ones that actually make the most money. So farmers, you're pulling a commodity out of the ground. It costs you, let's say, $100 to pull the, that commodity out of the ground. And then you sell it. But by the time you sell it, inflation hits. So now that, that commodity that was worth 100 is now worth 110. So you just made 10% before you even sold it. And you didn't do anything. You, just, yeah. you basically just held on to it for a time period. So the producers should do pretty well over the next subsequent years. It's a slow game, but those are the, if you had to pick those, those would be the ones that I would choose. So farmland is one of my favorites. It's been out of favor for over 10 years. It's a, it's a slow-growing asset. It's going you know, to appreciate a certain percentage a year. It's going to produce. It's, it's not home run. But you know, if you can get 4 to 8% a year on farmland, you know, people live on that stuff for generations, right? It's, compound it's, it, yes. Yeah. Yes. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Kirk Chisholm. He's a wealth manager and self-directed IRA advisor at Innovative Wealth. You can find out more at his website, InnovativeWealth.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth in Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth in Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Kurt Chisholm, Wealth Manager and Self-Directed IRA Advisor at Innovative Wealth. Uh, their website is InnovativeWealth.com. Welcome back to the show, Kurt. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jordan. Talk about real estate in this inflationary environment. First of all, as an investment, I mean, normally you think of real estate doing well. So would this be a good place to be by home builders and real estate investment trusts and uh, owning rental properties? And in general, is this a good time to invest in real estate? Yeah, it's a great question. And the funny thing about real estate is it's you can think rationally that it could do well and it could do terrible and for completely different reasons. Um, so I'll give you both. So the reasons that it won't do well is because as rates rise, it's more costly for the cash flow. 
which means that people will pay less for it, which means the price of real estate should decline in order to, because people buy based on affordability, right? Like what they can afford. If you can afford, you know, 2,500 bucks a month, that's what you're paying. It doesn't matter what the, what the price of the unit is. So I think from that perspective, the real estate prices are going to decline as, as the interest rates uh, increase. However, the good side is, let's say you did buy a, a property, um, in, in, you know, let's say a year ago, and you got that 2% 30-year mortgage, you paid a lot, and maybe the, a- the asset price goes down, but what do you care, right? Your cash flow is not going to change as long as you don't sell it. So you've locked in your cash flow with that mortgage. So in some ways, that's good, right? 2% 30-year mortgage, you probably never see that again. Um, the problem with that is, um, well, I say the good part before I get to the problem. The good part is that mortgage is going to devalue over time because not only because you're paying it, but because that, that mortgage is fixed. So if you have inflation, then that's going to, that 10% a year is going to devalue that mortgage, which means that over time it's going to, you know, be worth less and less. You're paying it back in cheaper dollars, you're saying, basically. Correct. Right. So from that perspective, that is the good part about inflation is if you have that. The challenge is going to mess with the asset prices and it's also going to mess with the rental rate. So right now people are willing to rent more because they can't afford to buy. So they want to pay more for rent. But at some point, if inflation keeps going and we have what people refer to as stagflation, which is probably going to hit us next year, um, when that happens, people aren't going to earn more, but things are going to cost more, which means that their wallet gets squeezed, uh, which means they can afford less, which means that rents have to drop. So there is, if you look at Japan as a good example, if Japan had deflation for, uh, I think, going on 30 years, 32 years now, and uh, real estate went down the whole time. Rents went down, prices went down, but your mortgage payment didn't go down. So that's dangerous. People have to that's really. Deflationary. Yes. So, so deflation if, is really bad for real estate. For people making the choice now, uh, as I said, the, the cost of homes has gone up. The interest rates have gone up. Uh, is it not worth stretching for that? But rents are going up even faster in many cases. What are, what are people supposed to do if they have to make the rent versus buy decision? Uh, you know, we, we actually put together a nice calculator for this because uh, I think it's a lot of people just make the assumption that it's, that makes sense to buy. It, it's an emotional decision, I get it, but buying a home is a personal expense, right? It's not a business decision. I know most people think their home is an investment. It's not. Because if you really run the numbers, it's no different. Renting versus buying is the equivalent. You're you're throwing good money after bad, or the alternative is you're you have money sitting in your house that you can't touch, which is not growing. So if you run the numbers, you know, truly run the numbers, not just some, you know, thing you saw online, but really, really look through all the numbers, you're going to find that they're generally equivalent. So I can only talk to my area, but I think it generally holds true for most of the country. So in my area, in, in New England, in Boston area, right around seven hundred to $800,000 home price. If I were to rent a home price, uh, a home that's priced above $800,000, it's cheaper for me to rent it than to own it. If it's under that 700 in that range, it's actually cheaper to own it than to rent it. Because it, as, as the prices go down, the rents go down, don't go down as much, but the prices do, so it's actually cheaper to own. But when it goes up, it doesn't make sense for a $2 million home to buy it because you're paying so much more. Like, I'll give you an example. I was looking at a house for a client, I think like four years ago, it was like a $1.4 million house. And it the rent... I, that they, they wanted, wanted was, a, was a third of what it would have cost to own it. A third. 
Yeah. And and they listed both together. So it wasn't like I was making up. They literally had both on the site. And, and I was like, oh, that must be a one-off. Nope. Looked around. It was the same thing. So you have to, it depends on the price of the home. But I think people will find that for the most part, and I'm not saying people shouldn't buy a home. It's it's an emotional decision. It is a personal expense. And that is not a business decision. If you're looking at it from the numbers, that's what I'm talking about. If you're looking at it from the emotional side of money, which is important, that has nothing to do with the numbers. That has to do with, you know, things that, you know, people want to feel like they own something. You know, a lot of women especially. They want, like, my wife's the same way. In the last year, though, when we, people got into these heated bidding wars and you'd have a house go in the market and it would get 60 all-cash offers at fifty and 100000 over asking price, that was a sign of a peak, right? That was a little bit too overheated. I think you can always see the signs of a top is when people are fighting to see who's, you know, who, who's going to be the one that's uh, standing when the music stops, the musical chairs. I mean, that's basically what they were doing. In the internet stocks, people were saying, hey, they don't make any money, but hey, I know it's probably worthless, but I'm going to just keep buying because it keeps going up. It's it's that kind of, you know, silliness that you see in bubbles, right? It's, hey, this thing has no value, or in the case of real estate, it has value, but it, it doesn't have the kind of values that we're seeing. I mean, I you know, I was looking at commercial properties in downtown Boston. I was talking to some of the owners, and they were saying, yeah, we're getting about a two cap on it which basically means you're getting a 2% yield yeah. on it. That's absurd. Who would want to do that? But yet it's still better than zero, which is why they were doing it. And they and they kept pushing that down, which to me just was a sign of the top. And at some point that changes, which it is now, then you don't want to be holding the bag because real estate is illiquid. So that's, so I, I think see, that's- You see more downside than upside for real estate for the most part now. And how about particularly commercial- like office building, downtown office building, with with the way uh, people's work habits have changed from working from home. Is that a more downside for office buildings? Yeah, so I I will tell you that I have some home builder clients and they conferred the same thing. I mean, home builder stocks are down a lot for a reason. So, you know, 40 to 50%, even though the market's not down that much. Everybody sees that home builders are gonna be a problem because they can't make the numbers work. So there are certain areas in real estate which should be okay. You know, if you had apartment rentals, those should probably hold up okay. And and I know I sound doom and gloomish here, and I don't want to depress everybody, but within this doom and gloom, there are always opportunities, right? So right now, things like manufacturing, U.S. manufacturing facilities should do fine. So industrial properties in that area should do okay. Uh, Rental properties, you know, in certain areas, given the certain dynamics, should do okay. Um, But a lot of areas, commercial, you know, office space, re- retail space, I wouldn't touch it. Uh, malls, uh, there's so many areas I wouldn't touch because, you know, like you said, COVID, COVID affected everything. Yeah. And, you know, we saw it two years ago and it and the trends are continuing. Look, both, you know, in my family, both me and my wife work and we don't need to go in the office. Why can't I just do it on Zoom? Why do I have to drive, spend an hour and a half to two hours of my day on the road I need to spend $40 to park in the city. Why do I want to do that? That's ridiculous. I can just save that money, save that time, spend it with my kids. Yeah. So the whole country has seen this and no one wants to go back to work. And I can't blame them. How about, we haven't touched about the rest of the world, global investing in this environment. Is, is this, uh, things have come down a lot. Is this a good opportunity or is it too risky to go overseas? You know, I, I think it depends. Right now, the way I kind of look at it is the U.S. dollar just keeps screaming higher. I mean, you can look at the chart. It just keeps going up. 
uh, for so many different reasons. Uh, you know, I think the rest of the world has its own unique problems. I mean, Europe has Russia. You know, if you don't think it's a problem, if you think, oh, well, there'll be, you know, there's nothing really spilling over yet. Wait till the winter. Right. And they need Russian gas. Okay. That's when it's going to be the problem. And they're going to, I don't know what's going to happen, but something's going to happen. And you look at Japan and, you know, the yen is, is kind of going in the opposite direction that they probably should want it because they're trying to, you know, peg it right now. So the whole world has their own individual problems. I, I personally think that there are times to be invested internationally. And I think one of those times may be coming up at some point in the near future. But right now, I don't think anything's safe because everyone had, I mean, look, Japan, some European countries had negative rates. How do you have negative interest rates? But they did for years. For a long time. Indeed. Yeah. Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Japan does. I mean, that's you know, deflationary. That's that's a sign of deflation, right? When you have negative rates. Well, it's a, it's a sign of the system not working properly is really what it is, right? You're correct. There is some heavy deflation in there. But it's a sign the system working pro not not working properly. How do you have negative interest rates? I mean, that shouldn't happen in a normal free market economy. Of course, we haven't had a free market economy in decades. But you know, people think we have it. We don't. I mean, there. What, what are the real interest rates? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're manipulated. If you yeah. don't think so, then you got your head in the sand because the Federal Reserve legitimately tells you they're manipulating interest rates. So every asset on the planet is manipulated by some entity, shape or form, government or otherwise. And so we don't really have free markets the way that we used to. So in, in many ways, it's hard to really tell what the future holds because you're basing it all on what some government entity is going to do or say. That's really the challenge with all of this. Yes, yes, very good. Well, we've learned a lot. Uh, my guest this hour has been Kirk Chisholm. Uh, he's a wealth manager and self-directed IRA advisor at Innovative Advisory Group based in Massachusetts. Uh, he covers a lot of ground. We've, we've covered about inflation and deflation and self-directed IRAs and alternative investments. Thanks so much, Kirk. We learned a lot in the last hour. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.